Hello, everyone, and welcome to Radically Normal. Uh, this is Michael. I'm here with Andre, and today we have uh, Dr. Carmen Imes, who's the Associate Professor of Old Testament at Biola University in California, and we're going to be talking about her book, Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters, which I love. Uh, but first, uh, Dr. Imes, thanks for joining us. Would you want to introduce yourself further? Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled that you guys are working through Exodus. It is the best book of the Bible, I think. We love it. So in your book, you talk about how uh, a lot of people read, and this is the ESV translation, to not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And we often just kind of think about our language or how we talk about God. And you say it's more about how it's more about bearing God's name if we translated that mm -hmm. better. So uh, I guess just as an overview of your book and then maybe how understanding uh, the high priest later in the book of Exodus how does all of that like fit with your argument that we're, it's not just about our language, but it's about actually bearing God's mm -hmm. name? Yeah, great question. So the, the text itself doesn't say anything about speech. So the command says you, in Hebrew, if, I, if we translated it literally or woodenly, um, we would say, um, you shall not lift up or bear or carry the name of Yahweh your God in vain. Um, and so most, most of the time, translators, interpreters come to this verse and they say, well, that doesn't really make sense. We don't carry names, so this must be a figure of speech for something else. And so then they go looking for parallel passages or ancient Near Eastern data that would kind of help them figure out what it means. And many have concluded that this is saying we shouldn't use God's name as a swear word or we shouldn't take oaths in his name. But really, there aren't any specific clues in the passage that say this is about speaking God's name. It really just says you shall not carry God's name in vain. So this is where the high priest comes in, um, because not, not very long later, just a few chapters later, are the instructions for what the high priest is to wear. And the high priest has on his chest a breast piece with 12 gemstones, and each of the stones are engraved with one of the names of the 12 tribes. And it says, um, and so he shall um, bear the names of the sons of Israel before me. And so using the same verb, same object, bearing the names, I think Aaron is showing us what does it mean to carry a name? Oh, he's, he is, in a sense, authorized by all 12 tribes to do priestly ministry. He's their representative. And we, we can tell that he represents them because he bears or carries their names. And in a similar way, God is inviting the people of Israel into relationship with him, a covenant relationship at Sinai, where he says, you are my people, you belong to me, therefore don't misrepresent me to the nations. So I imagine it as kind of an invisible tattoo or invisible brand that the people are wearing, that God stamps them with his name to say, you are mine. And because everyone knows they belong to Yahweh, um, they need to live in such a way that God's character and reputation are upheld. That's really good. And it's always really fun to talk uh, to people who um, are an expert in a, a specific book and, and just, you know, hearing them talk, uh, talk through that. But I love your answer about, you know, using uh, the Lord's name in vain or bearing his name in vain. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how this, uh, you know, plays a role of Israel? Um, on their missional role uh, to the nations, as well as, you know, how that can apply to us today? Yeah, great question, Andre. And I would say um, this kind of um, pokes at one of the hugest 
misunderstandings of the book of Exodus and of the law at Sinai. And that is most Christians think of the law as a, as what Israel had to do to get saved. And so because we think of it as a self in a salvific sense, they had to do this, these certain things to get saved. Then we think, of course, it's not relevant to us as Christians because we're saved through faith in Jesus. But I think if we can resituate the law where it actually appears in Exodus, which is after God rescues them from Egypt, he already redeems them and already says, you are mine. You're my treasured possession, kingdom of priests, holy nation. That makes clear that the law is not their means of salvation. It's the way they live out their vocation as the people who belong to God. So he's setting them apart um, in, in Exodus 19 verses four through six, he says, if you, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. And that phrase treasured possession is the Hebrew word segala, which is a technical term for people, for a treaty partner who's especially esteemed. And so Israel is being invited into a diplomatic role in which they represent God among the nations. And that's what all the laws are about. It's not because God is just fickle or he has these certain, you know, he's just really picky about things. It's because their mission, the thing they exist to do is to demonstrate his character to a watching world. So the law shows them how to demonstrate that holiness to everyone else. So then if if we understand that, then it makes more sense as New Testament believers to see how the law is part of our mission. Because if we're followers of Jesus, we've been called to bear his name. And therefore, the way that we live is missional. It's um, other people are watching us to find out what Jesus is like. And so that that um, sense of identity that we belong to Jesus and that sense of vocation that we represent him among the nations should then impact every area of our lives. Just like the law has, you know, there are laws at Sinai that have to do with with business and agriculture and with family relationships and sexual relationships and worship. There are all these different um, venues or areas of life that the law expresses how they're supposed to live. Similarly, as Christians, we need to be thinking about all these areas of our life and how are we demonstrating the character of Christ in all of those domains. So it's, it's our obedience is a matter of mission. It's not just, we're not trying to earn our salvation. We're already saved. Um, but we're being invited to step into a role that has great significance for the kingdom. That's awesome. I like what you said about how we often view the law as salvific for Israel. And so we were spending time in Exodus this season. And I think of like chapter nine in verses 14 through 16, God says he's going to get glory over Pharaoh. And then his uh, like the nations will see God in mm-hmm. his glory and we kind yes. of see that reverberate throughout, like when he, when they're going through the Red Sea, God's saying, I will get glory over Pharaoh. And yes. so if the goal is the knowledge of God amongst the nations, and it's so apparent throughout Exodus, and then again in Deuteronomy, the nations will see the wisdom mm-hmm. of God amongst the people. How do, how do you, why do you think we miss that today? If it's so apparent mm-hmm. throughout the entire Pentateuch? I, I think we're stuck. I think we're stuck in Pauline letters that have negative things to say about the law. And then we read that backwards into the Old Testament. And and so we end up just sort of dismissing the whole thing without realizing what Paul's really trying to do. I think Paul's Paul's trying to contrast um, a misunderstanding of the law that's happening in his day, not trying to say the law 
as Moses intended it, as God intended it through Moses, um, was somehow is somehow irrelevant. Um, so yeah, I, it's baffling because now now that I've seen this, I see it all through the pages of Scripture. You know, I think of the the Israelites as they cross the Jordan River and they're headed into the first battle against Jericho. And the spies come into the city and they talk with Rahab. And she has this beautiful testimony um, of what, what they all know about Yahweh because they watched what happened with Egypt. And so what you've pointed to, Michael, this, um, this idea that God will get glory from the nations because of his actions for Israel, we see that fulfilled with Rahab. She says, um, I know that Yahweh has given you this land. And that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We've heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For Yahweh, your God, is God in heaven above and on earth below. Like, what a testimony to the, the supremacy of Yahweh. And it's on the lips of a, a Canaanite woman who has heard of what God has done. That's really, really good. And another thing that I really liked about <clears throat> your answer was, um, you know, just speaking a little bit about um, how today, you know, there's more of a focus on, on you know, Paul and, and, and his letters. And, you know, mm. you mentioned a bit about how many people will pick up their Bibles and only, you know, see grace in the, in the New Testament, um, mm. but that the Old Testament is also, you know, full of examples of, of, of the Lord's grace. Um, so where can we see this in the Old Testament? And then how can we um, help people, you know, learn to see this, this grace in the Old Testament better? Yes, great question. I, this is something I'm really passionate about. So throughout my book, I'm trying to show people how God's grace is on display um, in the in the Old Testament, I think just a simple example is is God listening to the cries of the Israelites when they're oppressed in Egypt. So at the end of chapter two, it says the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God, and God heard their groaning, and He remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them, and I just see God listening to the cries of the oppressed. I was working this morning, um, I'm writing notes for a new women's study Bible um, that's going to come out in a few years um, by Lifeway. And so I'm writing notes on Exodus. And so this morning I was in chapter 22 and it specifically says, so Exodus 22, 21, do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner for you were foreigners in Egypt. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. It, it just, to me, that shows, that demonstrates God's care for the vulnerable. It's not just that he cares about Israel in their one situation, but this is true about him throughout history. And if you are oppressed, God is listening and hearing your cry and wants to set you free. If you're an oppressor, watch out because God sides with the oppressed and he hears the cries of those who are being mistreated. And so he's calling Israel to a different way of being a nation, you know, different than, than Egypt was being a nation. So that's, 
that's grace. I think a, a God who's not siding with the rich and powerful, but who are siding with, with those who are living at the margins. Um, I, I think, you know, we could multiply examples of God's grace, but those two just jumped to my mind. That's, that's really, really good. And, um, you know, one thing that, you know, really stuck out to me was um, how you talk a little bit about how, you know, we can see this new covenant and how, you know, how much grace is in that more so as, um, you know, a re- renewed uh, covenant and how mm. it kind of is, you know, con- is a continuation of, of, you know, all of the covenants and, and all of the things that we have um, seen in the Old Testament um, that culminate you know, in Jesus. Um, so, you know, why do you think believers have missed this point that they're kind of um, a continuation of each other, um, a renewal, you know, we, um, you might say, um, and, and how could we defend this idea uh, to other, um, you know, believers and, and unbelievers? Yes. Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you've asked me about this because certainly we think in the church about the new covenant and we think about um, how Jesus has done a new thing, but I don't think we've been very rigorous and very precise about how we express what is it that's new in the new covenant. Um, too many of us, because we're already looking at the Old Testament law through these lenses of, well, this was how they earned their salvation, or maybe we're thinking it was doomed to fail from the beginning. The law was just intended to show people what miserable failures they were and that they needed Jesus. You know, there's some very negative stereotypes about the law that are quite common in Christian circles. And I think if that's what you're thinking about the law, then, then it's really good news that there's a new covenant. We can just get rid of that first one. But I think if we slow down and read more carefully, we'll find that that's not what the prophets are saying. So Jeremiah 31 um, says, Jeremiah 31, 31 is the famous new covenant passage. And I just want us to, to read it and slow down and see what is new. The days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. And now we have to stop and ask ourselves, why will it not be like that? What's going to be different about this covenant? And then he says, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. So the difference this time is going to be their obedience. Uh, So far, there's so far, he hasn't said that the covenant is going to be different. It's the, the outcome of the covenant is going to be different. So he says, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. He doesn't say, I'm going to get rid of that law because it didn't work or it was a bad idea to begin with. He doesn't say that. He says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So the difference is this time they're going to keep it because it'll be internalized. It will be something that every Israelite cherishes. Every every member of the covenant people will cherish. So I think that what happens with Christ is because of Christ's death and resurrection and the giving of the spirit to the believing community, we're empowered by the spirit to internalize the law and to then walk in obedience um, rather than striving on our own strength to, to keep the law, we're empowered by God to keep the law that he gave us. That's incredible. And I totally agree because knowing our boundaries and what we're commanded to allows us to walk in like we bear God's image uh, to mm-hmm. others when we do that. And so I'm just thinking of a listener who might think, okay, I agree that God has given me something like I'm called to step into. 
but surely I'm not called to step into the ceremonial rituals of <laughs> Leviticus. So maybe for a listener, when they hear you say, you know, we're called to follow the law, the law is internalized for us. What law are you referring to? I'm so glad you asked because yes, this could be misleading. Certainly things change in the New Testament. Certainly the laws at Sinai, I would see they go through the prism of the cross um, and, and the death and resurrection of Jesus um, casts it in a new light. So there are parts of the Old Testament law that are not relevant to us in the same way that they were relevant to ancient Israel. Um, one example would be all of the laws regarding ritual purity. Because Jesus is the temple and we're no longer worshiping and offering sacrifices at a physical temple, Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. We no longer have to think about ritual purity. So there's laws about um, there's laws about skin diseases and molds and mildews and body fluids that we don't have to think about in the same ways. Because for ancient Israel, it wasn't that those things were sinful, but they weren't they weren't allowed to come into the physical presence of God in an impure state, in, in a state of ritual impurity. And so we don't have to think about ritual impurity in the same way. And then there are other laws whose purpose seems to be to, to make a dividing line between Israel and other nations ethnically. They eat a certain way. They, you know, they, they avoid pork and they avoid other foods in order to um, separate themselves from the nations. And I think what we see happening in Acts chapter 15 is that the doors are opened wide for Gentiles to follow Jesus as Gentiles. And so I think the kosher diet laws um, become irrelevant, not that we are going to cross them out and not read them anymore, or cut them out of our Bibles, because we can still learn, like they're, they're still important for their context in the Old Testament. But I think the New Testament church is called into a kind of fellowship across ethnic lines um, that makes the, the dietary laws irrelevant, or actually that the dietary laws would stand in the way of the kind of fellowship that God wants his people to have. And I would put circumcision in the same category. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant in the, in the Old Testament. Um, but now that Gentiles are allowed in as Gentiles, um, there's no need to circumcise anymore in order to be, become a follower of Jesus. So when I'm talking about obeying the law, what I, what I want to invite people to is to read and reflect on the Old Testament law to see which parts of the law are giving um, instructions that we can then consider how to live out in our context. There are all sorts of, of laws that have to do with social justice, with morality, with um, having a, a well-ordered society that protects the rights of our neighbors. And we can think about that. Like, for example, it, the Ten Commandments say, do not steal. Well, back in Bible times, there was no internet and there were no digital rights. But, but these days, we have to think about what does do not steal mean when we're talking about digital content creation? Um, we might have to think about what do we put on YouTube or what images do we use in our, um, in our programs or podcasts or whatever um, that belong to someone else and we need to give proper attribution. Otherwise we're stealing. And that's something that never would have crossed Moses' mind because it was before the digital age. So I think that the laws retain their relevance as we think about what is the principle behind this? How is it protecting my neighbor? And then how might I need to think about doing that in this context? 
That's really, really good. And, and you know, kind of along the, a similar vein, um, you know, speaking to, to the listener to, or to the person who, who may look at all the laws of, of, of Moses and say, you know, this is all outdated. Um, it's either all or nothing for me. You know, if I can dismiss mm-hmm. some of it, I should just dismiss all of it. Um, and then may point to um, a verse like Hebrews 8.13, uh, which says, and speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Um, mm. And then, you know, and making that argument might say that they don't want to, you know, observe or, or, or even read any of, of the Old Testament law. What would you say to this person? Um, and, you know, can you speak about the arguments in your book in, in light of this? Great. That's a great question, Andre. I would say, um, one thing I would say is, slow down and read that Hebrews passage in its context more carefully. And you'll see that, that what is obsolete and passing away is not the covenant or the law, but the sacrificial system. That's the thing we don't need anymore. That's become obsolete because Christ gave himself as a sacrifice once for all. And then I would say, think about Paul's letters because some people are like, Oh, but we're not under the law. We're under grace. Well, it's interesting to me that every time Paul sits down to write a letter, half of the letter is exposition and half of the letter is exhortation. He actually thinks it matters how we live. Half of every letter is devoted to specific instructions for what people are supposed to do and not do. So clearly the New Testament authors do not think, well, it doesn't matter. We can live however we want. We're under grace they're actually calling people to a very high standard of obedience. And so I think, yeah, it takes work to go back to the Old Testament and read these laws and see, you know, what which parts are still in effect and which ones aren't or how might we need to translate them into our context. But I would say it's actually fun. And anyone who doesn't want to do it is missing out. Um, you know, I, I love thinking together with students about how, the laws in the Old Testament are relevant in our context. Like when I was in, when I was teaching in Canada, I had a lot of students who were from farming families who grew up on farms. And so we talked about the agricultural laws. Like what is it? Why does God tell them not to reap to the edges of their field? And I would ask my students, um, do, does your family reap to the edges of their of your fields? And they'd say, yeah, we reap to the edges. So are you in violation of Deuteronomic law then, because you reap your whole harvest. And they're like, well, I don't know. But like, if we left grain there along the edges, nobody's going to come pick it. And and that's the whole point of the Old Testament law, not to reap to the edges, is to leave some for those who are on the margins of society who don't have land of their own so that they can come and gather grain and have enough food to eat. And so it's a, it's a law that, that ensures the generosity of landowners And so my students rightly discerned, yeah, if I don't reap to the edges of my field, it's not going to accomplish what the Old Testament law was trying to accomplish. People don't come and reap by hand these days. So then we talked about, well, how how might we put that into practice? How might we put into practice the spirit of that law? And so we talked about um, giving a percentage of the harvest to a local food bank so that they can distribute it to people in need. Better yet, providing jobs for people on the margins of society, maybe who can't pass a background check or who have some kind of physical or mental condition that make regular work difficult for them. Um, Could we be compassionate employers who who give people the dignity of a day's work, even when it would be hard for them to get a job somewhere else? 
And that's true whether you have a canola field or whether you own the Dollar Tree um, at, down, down the road, right? Like if, if you own a local store, you can be thinking about ways of providing for those on the margins um, in the way that you practice business. So I find that tremendously interesting to think about how can we be Christ-like, how can we honor God in our businesses um, in, in the ways that we live. We can shovel our sidewalks to make sure that our neighbors don't slip and fall. Um, you know, the Old Testament talks about putting a parapet around your roof so that people don't fall off and, and die, which implies that the homeowner is responsible for the safety of the people who, who come on their property. And so, yeah, we don't have flat roofs where we do stuff and people are liable to fall off. So what are ways that we can make our own properties um, safe for other people to navigate? And I just think those are really fun conversations to have and very generative. I don't know why we would want to ignore that. I love that. And it's, uh, I think people can hear you talk about the law with excitement and they're like, I've never, maybe it's <laughs> exciting for somebody who like gets to study all the time. But, and this was one of my favorite parts of the book, page 74, uh, I'll let you tell it. I don't need to read it. You definitely know it. Can you talk about the story with your son, Easton? He was only seven and he was pumped to hear the book of Leviticus. Can you tell <laughs> the listeners about that story? I love that. Sure. Yeah. You know, um, kids are fun. And if some of us have been told that certain parts of the Bible are boring and that's why we think they're boring, but it, but my son was was only seven. We were doing a Bible read through together. It was his first time through the grown-up Bible, you know, rather than a children's Bible. So we were watching videos from the Bible project for each book. And then we were listening to the Bible, like on an audio Bible. And I will never forget reading Leviticus with him because I just expected him to be like really bored and rolling his eyes. And when is this going to be over? And he was locked in, like he was just riveted. So we're, we're listening to the first seven chapters, which are all the sacrificial laws. And my son is very, he's always gravitated towards procedural texts or like, you know, you give him a toy, he pours over the instruction manual before he could even read, he'd pour over the the diagrams and illustrations of all of the parts of the toy more than he would play with the toy. So we got to Leviticus and he's hearing all of these sacrifice laws and he was trying to figure it out. He was trying to figure out what the rules are and why, like, what's the logic behind this? And, and so I could just see him kind of locked in, his wheels are turning. And one time he's like, mom, mom, pause it a minute. So pause the audio Bible. What is it, bud? He's like, well, last time it said if they were too poor to bring a sheep or a goat, then they could bring a cereal offering, but it didn't say that this time. <laughs> he was just like in his brain, categorizing all of the laws and finding them fascinating. Never mind that he's never going to offer a sacrifice in his entire life. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's awesome. And so maybe something people are like, okay, now I've seriously heard enough about Leviticus, but <laughs> You did serve overseas with your husband as missionaries, correct? We did. And so I think just a lot of people, uh, we talked about the law and then applying principles of the law and stuff like that. But the whole, this, I guess this interview, your book was about bearing God's name. So for mm. people looking to apply that name command today, we're to bear God's mm. name amongst the nations and not just as missionaries overseas, mm. but in our own context, work, school, whatever that may be. Uh, what's what would just be like your application for that? How do people mm. think about bearing God's name in their context? Mm. I love that question. 
a couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to hear Greg Laurie speak on our campus at Biola, and he was talking about evangelism, of course. And he he said, you know, some of you, if I did an audit of your social media profile of, of your newsfeed, I would know exactly where you stand on masks and on vaccines, but I would have no idea where you stand on Jesus. And he was, he really challenged us that there are, we, we tend to get caught up in the spirit of the age in the moment and the debates that are happening. And we have lost sight of our primary mission, which is to demonstrate the love of God to the world around us. And it, you know, that, that would be a question that you could ask yourself, like, like, um, make a plan to go onto all your social media accounts and scroll through and see if I didn't know Carmen, would I be able to tell that she's a follower of Jesus? Would her posts look different from, from anyone else? And I'm not asking you to audit me. I'm asking you to audit yourself, right? Look at like, you know, does, is Michael's public persona or is Andre's public persona, one that, that is pointing people towards the gospel or pointing them to some other issue that's, um, that's, that's not central and not relevant. And the way that we talk to each other online, the way we talk about each other, the ways that we exalt ourselves, the ways that we um, just fly off the handle about issues, those are all ways that we're failing to bear God's name well. Um, so, so that's just one area that we could think about, you know, what does it look like to engage online in a way that people will say, wow, there's something different about Andre. He doesn't, he doesn't sound like other people, um, you know, on, on Facebook or on Twitter or on Instagram or whatever. Um, so I, I would just challenge people to think if, if your neighbor found out that you were a Christian, would they be surprised or would they be like, oh yeah, I can tell. I can tell that they're a follower of Jesus. Our lives, our lives are supposed to be um, missional in that we're demonstrating to the world um, who God is by the way that we love one another and the way that we, uh, the way that we do, we do what you know. That the, there was a, that old book that um, asked the question, "What would Jesus do?" And when people look at us, do they see Jesus or do they see somebody who's all wrapped up in this cultural moment? Um, and I think, I think that's a challenging question to ask ourselves, would your neighbor be surprised if they heard you were a Christian or do they already know? That's really, really good. And, you know, I hope that is, you know, some, some inspiration for, for people, especially, you know, tying everything about your book and that we talked about with, with book of Exodus, uh, to our, to our lives today, uh, jumping into some, uh, lighter questions as, you know, we wrap up our interview, which I enjoyed, uh, tremendously, by the way, um, you know, there's two questions that we, you know, we just ask uh, a lot of our guests uh, for the past few seasons. And, and the first one is in the past, like three to six months, uh, who might be um, a Christian, you know, thinker, uh, could be a pastor, you know, songwriter, musician, whoever, uh, who has been influential to you and why? Mm. I'm going to say Andrew Peterson. He's a singer, songwriter, and a and a fiction writer and nonfiction writer who I discovered during the pandemic. And I don't know where I've been because his music is really deep and his writing is amazing. So he wrote a series of um, fantasy books for, for like young teens. 
that are just fantastic. It's like a cross between Chronicles of Narnia, Lord of the Rings, and Princess Bride. I think that's how it's, I've heard it described. Like, sort of like really funny. We, we, my son and I listened to all four books during the pandemic and he's 13 and absolutely loved them. And he's now read through the whole series at least twice since then. Um, just really powerful, redemptive plot, but they're not, they don't come across as like, this is a Christian book or this is an allegory. Like they, they're really well-written. Um, kind, I, I'd say they're the new Chronicles of Narnia. 50 years, people are still going to be reading the Wingfeather saga. Wow. They're act you're actually the second person I've heard say it will be a classic like Narnia or the Lord of the Rings. So that's, I actually haven't yeah. read it, so maybe that's next on the list. And then totally we'll worth it. And then the second question we ask every guest, uh, I have a cup of coffee right here. And uh, Andre and I always talk about coffee on the podcast. Do you, are you a coffee drinker? Do you have a favorite uh, coffee drink? If so. Yeah. So I, I'm a little bit weird in that I can't tolerate caffeine very well. Um, so it's decaf for me, um, which I know to many coffee drinkers, is just like anathema. So I apologize. I just, I get really jittery if I have caffeine. Um, so decaf, but when we moved to Southern California, um, we gave away our Keurig machine and I just used my birthday money to buy a French press and it is the best $25 I have ever spent on a birthday present. Wow. What a difference. <laughs> so I'm now officially a coffee snob. <laughs> Because I think French press coffee is way, way better. Um, and I don't know if I have a specific, I don't usually order coffee going out because I'm just really frugal that way uh, or cheap. Um, so when I make my own, I like, I like to sweeten it with honey or maple syrup. Yeah. So that's maybe unique. Wow, that is unique. Never heard that before. I only have had honey with hot tea. So yeah, yeah. I started I started doing that a while back and decided I really liked the taste. So that's awesome. Well, thank thank you, Dr. Rimes, for joining us. I'd encourage everyone to pick up if you want to hear a lot more about this. Uh, Bearing God's name, why Sinai still matters it was a great read. Um, I read it really quickly and I really enjoyed it. And I thought it was super helpful. And there's more of what we talked about in the book. So Dr. Rimes, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. 